Section 17 of A Far Country by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 15. That winter many other entertainments were given in our honor, but the conviction grew upon me that Maud had no real liking for the social side of life, that she acquiesced in it only on my account thus at the very outset of our married career an irritant developed signs of it indeed were apparent from the first when we were preparing the house we had rented for occupancy hurrying away from my office at odd times to furniture and department stores to help decide such momentous questions as curtains carpets chairs and tables i would often spy the tall uncompromising figure of susan peters standing beside maud's while an obliging clerk spread out anxiously rugs or wallpapers for their inspection why don't you get nancy to help you too i ventured to ask her once ours is such a little house compared to nancy's hugh my attitude towards susan had hitherto remained undefined she was tom's wife and tom's affair in spite of her marked disapproval of the modern trend in business and social life a prejudice she had communicated to tom as a bachelor i had not disliked her and it was certain that these views had not mitigated tom's loyalty and affection for me susan had been my friend as had her brother perry and lucia perry's wife they made no secret of the fact that they deplored in me what they were pleased to call plutocratic obsessions nor had their disapproval always been confined to badinage nancy too they looked upon as a renegade i was able to bear their reproaches with the superior good-nature that springs from success to point out why the american tradition to which they so fatuously clung was a thing of the past the habit of taking dinner with them at least once a week had continued and their arguments rather amused me if they chose to dwell in a backwater out of touch with the current of great affairs this was a matter to be deplored but i did not feel strongly enough to resent it so long as i remained a bachelor the relationship had not troubled me but now that i was married i began to consider with some alarm its power to affect my welfare it had remained for nancy to inform me that i had married a woman with a mind of her own i had flattered myself that i should be able to control maud to govern her predilections and now at the very beginning of our married life she was showing a disquieting tendency to choose for herself to be sure she had found my intimacy with the peters and blackwoods already formed but it was an intimacy from which i was growing away i should not have quarrelled with her if she had not discriminated nancy made overtures and maud drew back susan presented herself and with annoying perversity and in an extraordinarily brief time maud had become her intimate it seemed to me that she was always at susan's lunching or playing with the children who grew devoted to her or with susan choosing carpets and clothes while more and more frequently we dined with the peters and the blackwoods or they with us with perry's wife maud was scarcely less intimate than with susan 
this was the more surprising to me since lucia blackwood was a dyed-in-the-wool intellectual a graduate of radcliffe the daughter of a harvard professor perry had fallen in love with her during her visit to susan lucia was perhaps the most influential of the group she scorned the world she held strong views on the higher education of women she had long discarded orthodoxy for what may be called a cambridge stoicism of simple living and high thinking while maud was a strict presbyterian and not in the least given to theories when some months after our homecoming i ventured to warn her gently of the dangers of confining oneself to a coterie especially one of such narrow views her answer was rather bewildering but isn't tom your best friend she asked i admitted that he was and you always went there such a lot before we were married this too was undeniable at the same time i replied i have other friends i'm fond of the blackwoods and the peters i am not advocating seeing less of them but their point of view if taken without any antidote is rather narrowing we ought to see all kinds i suggested with a fine restraint you mean more worldly people she said with her disconcerting directness not necessarily worldly i struggled on people who know more of the world yes who understand it better maud sighed i do try hugh i return their calls i do try to be nice to them but somehow i don't seem to get along with them easily i'm not myself they make me shy it's because i'm provincial nonsense i protested you're not a bit provincial and it was true her dignity and self-possession redeemed her nancy was not once mentioned but i think she was in both our minds since my marriage too i had begun to resent a little the attitude of tom and susan and the blackwoods of humorous yet affectionate tolerance toward my professional activities and financial creed though maud showed no disposition to take this seriously i did suspect however that they were more and more determined to rescue maud from what they would have termed a frivolous career and on one of these occasions so exasperating in married life when a slight cause for pique tempts a husband or wife to try a case before a friendly jury maud remarked it at the dinner-table that i thought she ought to go out more than she did i have forgotten the conversation that went before that's right don't let him turn you into a society doll perry put in you were created for something better i was furious but i repressed my temper until maud and i were alone why perry only said that in fun she exclaimed in surprise i don't care to be made an idiot of i said perry has an idea that all wisdom will die with him of course if you prefer his way of looking at things but i don't you how can you be so cruel and unjust and silly apparently you attach more importance to his views and susan's and lucia's than to mine she gazed at me for a moment with widened eyes as though i had suddenly become a stranger 
and then falling into a chair burst into weeping oh i know i'm a failure i heard her cry convulsively i'm not what you want i can't ever be what you want you really don't care for me why did you marry me i was appalled yet for the instant my exasperation was rather heightened by this enigmatic result i paced up and down the room drew aside the curtain and gazed out at the arc lights on the street and then back at her the sobbing continued presently i went over and laid my hand on her shoulder for the first time she shrank from my touch i didn't mean to hurt your feelings maud pressing her handkerchief to her eyes she fairly ran out of the room and up the stairs i heard her close the bedroom door after her and turn the key in the lock i went to my study and began to go over some papers i had brought home with me trying and at first succeeding in exerting a power which for many years i had cultivated of shutting out all disturbing human relationships of suppressing my feelings but presently my attention to the work relaxed and i began to ask myself whether this affair were only a squall something to be looked for once in a while on the seas of matrimony and weathered or whether maud had not after all been right when she declared that i had made a mistake and that we were not fitted for one another in this gloomy view endless years of incompatibility stretched ahead and for the first time i began to rehearse with a certain cold detachment the chain of apparently accidental events which had led up to my marriage to consider the gradual blindness that had come over my faculties and finally to wonder whether judgment ever entered into sexual selection would maud have relapsed into this senseless fit if she had realized how fortunate she was for i was prepared to give her what thousands of women longed for position and influence my resentment rose again against perry and tom and i began to attribute their lack of appreciation of my achievements to jealousy they had not my ability this was the long and short of it i pondered also regretfully on my bachelor days and for the first time i who had worked so hard to achieve freedom felt the pressure of the yoke i had fitted over my own shoulders i had voluntarily though unwittingly returned to slavery this was what had happened and what was to be done about it i would not consider divorce well i should have to make the best of it whether this conclusion brought on a mood of reaction i am unable to say i was still annoyed by what seemed to the masculine mind a senseless and dramatic performance on maud's part an incomprehensible case of nerves nevertheless there stole into my mind many recollections of maud's affection many passages between us and my eye chanced to fall on the inkwell she had bought me out of the allowance i gave her an unanticipated pity welled up within me for her loneliness her despair in that room upstairs i got up and hesitated a counteracting inhibiting wave passed through me i hardened i began to walk up 
and down a prey to conflicting impulses something whispered go to her another voice added for your own peace of mind at any rate i rejected the intrusion of this motive as unworthy turned out the light and groped my way upstairs the big clock in the hall struck twelve i listened outside the door of the bedroom but all was silent within i knocked maud i said in a low voice there was no response maud let me in i didn't mean to be unkind i'm sorry after an interval i heard her say i'd rather stay here to-night but at length after more entreaty and self-abasement on my part she opened the door the room was dark we sat down together on the window-seat and all at once she relaxed and her head fell on my shoulder and she began weeping again i held her the alternating moods still running through me hugh she said at length how could you be so cruel when you know i love you and would do anything for you i didn't mean to be cruel maud i answered i know you didn't but at times you seem so indifferent and you can't understand how it hurts i haven't anybody but you now and it's in your power to make me happy or or miserable later on i tried to explain my point of view to justify myself all i mean i concluded at length is that my position is a little different from perry's and tom's they can afford to isolate themselves but i'm thrown professionally with the men who are building up this city some of them like ralph hambleton and mr ogilvy i've known all my life life isn't so simple for us maud we can't ignore the social side i understand she said contentedly you are more of a man of affairs much more than tom or perry and you have greater responsibilities and wider interests i'm really very proud of you only don't you think you are a little too sensitive about yourself when you are teased i let this pass i give a paragraph from a possible biography of hugh parrot which as then seemed not improbable might in the future have been written by some aspiring young worshipper of success on his return from a brief but delightful honeymoon in england mr parrot took up again with characteristic vigour the practice of the law he was entering upon the prime years of manhood golden opportunities confronted him as indeed they confronted other men but parrot had the foresight to take advantage of them and his training under theodore watling was now to produce results the reputations had already been made of some of that remarkable group of financial geniuses who were chiefly instrumental in bringing about the industrial revolution begun after the civil war at the same time as is well known a political leadership developed that gave proof of a deplorable blindness to the logical necessity of combinations in business the lawyer with initiative and brains became an indispensable factor etc etc
the biography might have gone on to relate my association with and important services to adolf scherer in connection with his constructive dream shortly after my return from abroad in answer to his summons i found him at heinrich's his napkin tucked into his shirt front and a dish of his favourite sausages before him so the honeymoon is over he said and pressed my hand you are right to come back to business and after a while you can have another honeymoon eh i have had many since i married and how long do you think was my first a day i was a foreman then and the wedding was at six o'clock in the morning we went into the country the wife and i he laid down his knife and fork possessed by the memory i have grown rich since and we've been to europe and back to germany and travelled on the best ships and stayed at the best hotels and i never enjoyed a holiday more than that day it wasn't long afterwards i went to mr durrett and told him how he could save much money he was always ready to listen mr durrett when an employee had anything to say he was a big man an ironmaster ah he would be astonished if only he could wake up now he would not only have to be an ironmaster i agreed but a financier and a railroad man to boot a jack-of-all-trades laughed mr scherer that's what we are men in my position well it was comparatively simple then when we had no sherman law and crazy statutes such as some of the states are passing to bother us what has got into the politicians that they are indulging in such foolishness he exclaimed more warmly we try to build up a trade for this country and they're doing their best to tie our hands and tear it down when i was in washington the other day i was talking with one of those western senators whose state has passed those laws he said to me mr scherer i've been making a study of the boyne ironworks you are clever men but you are building up monopolies which we propose to stop by what means i asked rebates for one said he you get preferential rates from your railroad which give you advantages over your competitors foolishness mr scherer exclaimed i tell him the railroad is a private concern built up by private enterprise and it has a right to make special rates for large shippers no railroads are public carriers with no right to make special rates i ask him what else he objects to and he says patented processes as if we don't have a right to our own patents we buy them i buy them when other steel companies won't touch em what is that but enterprise and business foresight and taking risks and then he begins to talk about the terror of taking money out of the pockets of american consumers and making men like me rich i have come to washington to get the tariff raised on steel rails and watling and other senators we send down there are raising it for us we are building up monopolies well suppose we are we can't help it even if we want to has he ever made a study of the other side of the question the competition side of course he hasn't he brought down his beer mug heavily on the table in times of excitement his speech suggested the german idiom abruptly his air grew mysterious he glanced around the room now becoming empty and lowered his voice i have been thinking a long time i have a little scheme he said and i have been to washington to see watling to talk over it well he thinks much of you founds and ripon are good lawyers but they are not smart like you 
see parrot he says and he can come down and talk to me so i ask you to come here that is why i say you are wise to get home honeymoons can wait eh i smiled appreciatively they talk about monopoly those populist senators but i ask you what is a man in my place to do if you don't eat somebody eats you is it not so like the boa constrictors that is modern business look at the keystone plate people over there at morris for years we sold them steel billets from which to make their plates and three months ago they served notice on us that they are getting ready to make their own billets they buy mines north of the lakes and are building their plant here is a big customer gone next year maybe the empire tube company goes into the business of making crude steel and many more thousands of tons go from us what is left for us parrot obviously you've got to go into the tube and plate business yourselves i said so cried mr scherer triumphantly or it is close up we are not fools no we will not lie down and be eaten like lambs for any law dickinson can put his hand on the capital and i-i have already bought a tract on the lakes at bolivar i have already got a plant designed with the latest modern machinery i can put the ore right there i can send the coke back from here in cars which would otherwise be empty and manufacture tubes at eight dollars a ton less than they are selling if we can make tubes we can make plates and if we can make plates we can make boilers and beams and girders and bridges it is not like it was but where is it all leading my friend the time will come is right on us now in respect to many products when the market will be flooded with tubes and plates and girders and then we'll have to find a way to limit production and the inefficient mills will all be forced to shut down the logic seemed unanswerable even had i cared to answer it he unfolded his campaign the Boyne Ironworks was to become the Boyne Ironworks Limited, owner of various subsidiary companies, some of which were as yet blissfully ignorant of their fate. All had been thought out as calmly as the partition of Poland. Only lawyers were required, and ultimately, after the process of acquisition should have been completed, a delicate document was to be drawn up which would pass through the meshes of that annoying statutory net the sherman anti-trust law new mines were to be purchased extending over a certain large area wide coal deposits little strips of railroad to tap them the competition of the keystone plate people was to be met by acquiring and bringing up to date the plate mills of king and son over the borders of a sister state the Summersworth Bridge and Construction Company and the Gring Steel and Wire Company were to be absorbed. When all of this should have been accomplished, there would be scarcely a process in the steel industry, from the smelting of the ore to the completion of a bridge, which the Boyne Iron Works could not undertake. Such was the beginning of the lateral extension period. Two can play at that game mr scherer said and if those fellows could only be content to let well enough alone to continue buying their crude steel from us there wouldn't be any trouble it was evident however that he really welcomed the trouble that he was going into battle with enthusiasm he had already picked out his points of attack and was marching on them 
life for him would have been a poor thing without new conflicts to absorb his energy and he had already made of the boyne ironworks with its open hearth furnaces a marvel of modern efficiency that had opened the eyes of the steel world and had drawn the attention of a personality in new york a personality who was one of the new and dominant type that had developed with such amazing rapidity the banker dinosaur preying upon and superseding the industrial dinosaur conquering type of the preceding age builder of the railroads mills and manufactories the banker dinosaurs the gigantic ones were in wall street and strove among themselves for the industrial spoils accumulated by their predecessors it was characteristic of these monsters that they never fought in the open unless they were forced to then the earth rocked huge economic structures tottered and fell and much dust arose to obscure the vision of smaller creatures who were bewildered and terrified such disturbances were called panics and were blamed by the newspapers on the democratic party or on the reformers who had wantonly assailed established institutions these dominant bankers had contrived to gain control of the savings of thousands and thousands of fellow-citizens who had deposited them in banks or paid them into insurance companies and with the power thus accumulated had sallied forth to capture railroads and industries the railroads were the strategic links with these in hand certain favoured industrial concerns could be fed and others starved into submission adolf scherer might be said to represent a transitional type for he was not only an iron master who knew every detail of his business who kept it ahead of the times he was also a strategist wise in his generation making friends with the railroad while there had yet been time at length securing rebates and favors and when that railroad which had been constructed through the enterprise and courage of such men as nathaniel durrett had passed under the control of the banker personality to whom i have referred and had become part of a system adolf scherer remained in alliance and continued to receive favors i can well remember the time when the ultimate authority of the railroad was transferred quietly to wall street alexander barber its president had been a great man but after that he bowed in certain matters to a greater one i have digressed mr scherer unfolded his scheme talking about units as calmly as though they were checkers on a board instead of huge fiery reverberating mills where thousands and thousands of human beings toiled day and night beings with families and hopes and fears whose destinies were to be dominated by the will of the man who sat opposite me but did not he in his own person represent the triumph of that american creed of opportunity he too had been through the fire had sweated beside the blasts had handled the ingots of steel he was one of the fittest who had survived and looked it had he no memories of the terrors of that struggle adolf scherer had grown to be a giant and yet without me without my profession he was a helpless giant 
at the mercy of those alert and vindictive lawmakers who sought to restrain and hamper him to check his growth with their webs how stimulating the idea of his dependence how exhilarating too the thought that that vision which had first possessed me as an undergraduate on my visit to jerry kime was at last to be realized i had now become the indispensable associate of the few who divided the spoils i was to have a share in these myself you're a young parrot mr scherer concluded but watling has confidence in you and you will consult him frequently i believe in the young men and i have already seen something of you so when i returned to the office i wrote theodore watling a letter expressing my gratitude for the position he had so to speak willed me of confidential legal adviser to adolf scherer though the opportunity had thrust itself upon me suddenly and sooner than i expected it i was determined to prove myself worthy of it i worked as i had never worked before making trips to new york to consult leading members of this new branch of my profession there trips to washington to see my former chief there too numerous conferences with local personages with mr dickinson and mr grierson and judah b talent whose newspaper was most useful there were consultations and negotiations of a delicate nature with the owners and lawyers of other companies to be taken in nor was it all legal work in the older and narrower sense men who are playing for principalities are making war some of our operations had all the excitement of war there was information to be got and it was got somehow modern war involves a spy system and a friendly telephone company is not to be despised and all of this work from first to last had to be done with extreme caution moribund distinctions of right and wrong did not trouble me for the modern man labours religiously when he knows that evolution is on his side for all of these operations a corps of counsel had been employed including the firm of harrington and bowes next to theodore watling joel harrington was deemed the ablest lawyer in the city we organized in due time the corporation known as the boyne ironworks limited a trust agreement was drawn up that was a masterpiece of its kind one that caused first and last meddling officials in the department of justice at washington no little trouble and perplexity i was proud of the fact that i had taken no small part in its composition in short in addition to certain emoluments and opportunities for investment i emerged from the affair firmly established in the good graces of adolf scherer and with a reputation practically made a year or so after the boyne company limited came into existence i chanced one morning to go down to the new schwele hotel to meet a new yorker of some prominence and was awaiting him in the lobby when i overheard a conversation between two commercial travellers who were sitting with their backs to me did you notice that fellow who went up to the desk a moment ago asked one the young fellow in the grey suit sure who is he he looks as if he was pretty well fixed i guess he is replied the first that's parrot he's sharer's confidential counsel he used to be senator watling's partner but they say he's even got something on the old man 
in spite of the feverish life i led i was still undoubtedly young-looking and in this i was true to the incoming type of successful man our fathers appeared staid at six-and-thirty clothes of course made some difference and my class and generation did not wear the sombre and cumbersome kind with skirts and tails i patronized a tailor in new york my chestnut hair a little darker than my father's had been showed no signs of turning grey although it was thinning a little at the crown of my forehead and i wore a small moustache clipped in a straight line above the mouth this made me look less like a college youth thanks to a strong pigment in my skin derived probably from scotch-irish ancestors my colour was fresh i have spoken of my life as feverish and yet i am not so sure that this word completely describes it it was full to overflowing one side of it and i did not miss save vaguely in rare moments of weariness any other side that might have been developed i was busy all day long engaged in affairs i deemed to be alone of vital importance in the universe i was convinced that the welfare of the city demanded that supreme financial power should remain in the hands of the group of men with whom i was associated and whose battles i fought in the courts in the legislature in the city council and sometimes in washington although they were well cared for there by every means ingenuity could devise their enemies were to be driven from the field and they were to be protected from blackmail a sense of importance sustained me and i remembered in that first flush of a success for which i had not waited too long what a secret satisfaction it was to pick up the era and see my name embedded in certain dignified notices of board meetings transactions of weight or cases known to the initiated as significant mr scherer's interests were taken care of by mr hugh parrott the fact that my triumphs were modestly set forth gave me more pleasure than if they had been trumpeted in headlines although i might have started out in practice for myself my affection and regard for mr watling kept me in the firm which became watling founds and parrot and a new arrangement was entered into mr ripon retired on account of ill health there were instances however when a certain amount of annoying publicity was inevitable such was the famous galligan case which occurred some three or four years after my marriage aloysius galligan was a brakeman and his legs had become paralyzed as the result of an accident that was the result of defective sills on a freight car he had sued and been awarded damages of fifteen thousand dollars to the amazement and indignation of miller gorse the supreme court to which the railroad had appealed affirmed the decision it wasn't the single payment of fifteen thousand dollars that the railroad cared about of course a precedent might be established for compensating maimed employees which would be expensive in the long run carelessness could not be proved in this instance gorse sent for me I had been away with Maud at the sea for two months, and had not followed the case. "'You've got to take charge, Parrot, and get a rehearing, see Baring, and find out who in the deuce is to blame for this. Chesley's one, of course. 
we ought never to have permitted his nomination for the supreme bench it was against my judgment but varney and gill assured me that he was all right i saw judge baring that evening we sat on a plush sofa in the parlor of his house in baker street i had a notion gorse would be mad he said but it looked to me as if they had it on us parrot i didn't see how we could do anything else but affirm without being too rank of course if he feels that way and you want to make a motion for a rehearing i'll see what can be done something's got to be done i replied can't you see what such a decision lets them in for all right said the judge who knew an order when he heard one i guess we can find an error he was not a little frightened by the report of mr gorse's wrath for election day was approaching say you wouldn't take me for a sentimental man now would you i smiled at the notion of it well i'll own up to you this kind of got under my skin that galligan is a fine-looking fellow if there ever was one and he'll never be of a bit of use any more of course the case was plain sailing and they ought to have had the verdict but that lawyer of his handled it to the queen's taste if i do say so he made me feel real bad by god as if it was my own son ed who'd been battered up lord i can't forget the look in that man galligan's eyes i hate to go through it again and reverse it but i guess i'll have to now the judge sat gazing at the flames playing over his gas log who was the lawyer i asked a man by the name of krebs he replied never heard of him before he's just moved to the city this city i ejaculated the judge glanced at me interestedly this city of course what do you know about him well i answered when i had recovered a little from the shock for it was a distinct shock he lived in elkington he was the man who stirred up the trouble in the legislature about bill seven o nine the judge slapped his knee that fellow he exclaimed and ruminated why didn't somebody tell me he added complainingly why didn't miller gorse let me know about it instead of licking up a fuss after it's all over of all men of my acquaintance i had thought the judge the last to grow maudlin over the misfortunes of those who were weak or unfortunate enough to be defeated and crushed in the struggle for existence and it was not without food for reflection that i departed from his presence to make mr baring feel bad was no small achievement and krebs had been responsible for it of course not galligan krebs had turned up once more it seemed as though he were destined to haunt me well i made up my mind that he should not disturb me again at any rate i at least had learned to eliminate sentimentality from business and it was not without deprecation i remembered my experience with him at the capitol when he had made me temporarily ashamed of my connection with bill seven o nine i had got over that and when i entered the courtroom the tribunal having graciously granted a rehearing on the ground that it had committed an error in the law my feelings were of lively curiosity and zest i had no disposition to underrate his abilities but i was fortified by the consciousness of a series of triumphs behind me by a sense of association with prevailing forces against which he was helpless 
i could afford to take a superior attitude in regard to one who was destined always to be dramatic as the case proceeded i was rather disappointed on the whole that he was not dramatic not even as dramatic as he had been when he defied the powers in the legislature he had changed but little he still wore ill-fitting clothes but i was forced to acknowledge that he seemed to have gained in self-control in presence he had nodded at me before the case was called as he sat beside his maimed client and i had been on the alert for a hint of reproach in his glance there was none i smiled back at him he did not rant he seemed to have rather a remarkable knowledge of the law in a conversational tone he described the sufferings of the man in the flannel shirt beside him but there could be no question of the fact that he did produce an effect the spectators were plainly moved and it was undeniable that some of the judges wore rather a sheepish look as they toyed with their watch-chains or moved the stationery in front of them they had seen maimed men before they had heard impassioned sentimental lawyers talk about wives and families and god and justice krebs did none of this just how he managed to bring the thing home to those judges to make them ashamed of their role just how he managed in spite of my fortified attitude to revive something of that sense of discomfort i had experienced at the state house is difficult to say it was because i think he contrived through the intensity of his own sympathy to enter into the body of the man whose cause he pleaded to feel the despair in galligan's soul an impression that was curiously conveyed despite the dignified limits to which he confined his speech it was strange that i began to be rather sorry for him that i felt a certain reluctant regret that he should thus squander his powers against overwhelming odds what was the use of it all at the end his voice became more vibrant though he did not raise it as he condemned the railroad for its indifference to human life for its contention that men were cheaper than rolling stock i encountered him afterward in the corridor i had made a point of seeking him out perhaps from some vague determination to prove that our last meeting in the little restaurant at the capitol had left no traces of embarrassment in me i was in fact rather aggressively anxious to reveal myself to him as one who has thriven on the views he condemned as one in whose unity of mind there is no rift he was alone apparently waiting for some one leaning against a steam radiator in one of his awkward angular poses looking out of the courthouse window how are you i said blithely so you've left elkington for a wider field i wondered whether my alert cousin-in-law george hutchins had made it too hot for him he turned to me unexpectedly a face of profound melancholy his expression had in it oddly a trace of sternness and i was somewhat taken aback by this evidence that he was still bearing vicariously the troubles of his client so deep had been the thought i had apparently interrupted that he did not realize my presence at first oh it's you parrot yes i've left elkington 
he said something of a surprise to run up against you suddenly like this i expected to see you he answered gravely and the slight emphasis he gave the pronoun implied not only a complete knowledge of the situation and of the part i had taken in it but also a greater rebuke than if his accusation had been direct but i clung to my affability if i can do anything for you let me know i told him he said nothing he did not even smile at this moment he was opportunely joined by a man who had the appearance of a labour leader and i walked away i was resentful my mood in brief was that of a man who has done something foolish and is inclined to talk to himself aloud but the mood was complicated made the more irritating by the paradoxical fact that that last look he had given me seemed to have borne the traces of affection it is perhaps needless to add that the court reversed its former decision. End of section 17